Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Elaine Meyer, RN, PhD, a clinical psychologist on the Medical Surgical Intensive Care Unit and director of the Institute for Professionalism and Ethical Practice at Children's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Meyer is associate professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Meyer is with us today to discuss a paper published recently in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine titled, Difficult Conversations, Improving Communication Skills and Relational Abilities in Healthcare. Elaine and her co-authors sought to evaluate the impact of interdisciplinary experiential learning paradigm to improve communication skills and relational abilities of pediatric critical care practitioners and came to interesting conclusions, which she will share with us today. The citation for this article is Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, 2009, Volume 10, pages 352 to 359. Good afternoon, Elaine. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, It's my pleasure to be here. Would you please start by giving us a summary of the study you did and the important findings? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, I'm working here in Boston at uh, Children's Hospital in Boston, and we developed over several years um, a one-day interdisciplinary experiential program for multidisciplinary um, professionals in the critical care setting, and we evaluated our one-day program, and uh, we found some, uh, we were very pleased with our findings. Uh, We really focused on helping the clinicians to understand the patient's and the family's perspective about difficult conversations in healthcare, and also we tried to um, sensitize the practitioners to what really they have to offer uh, when we need to have these difficult kinds of conversations in critical care, of which, as you know, there are no shortage. Um, And what we found in our study is that uh, practitioners um, really were helpful, uh, were helped with a a bit of a roadmap, if you will, and a safe place to learn um, about these difficult conversations. And when when they have a chance to practice them with colleagues, uh, especially in an interdisciplinary context, we used uh, a pre, post, and a five-month follow-up design. Uh, We used self-report questionnaires to evaluate the program. And participants were nearly unanimous um, at pre and post that uh, to 93 to 98% of the participants said that after they had taken the program, they felt better prepared to have difficult conversations with the families um, in the pediatric intensive care unit. They also felt that they had um, basically uh, increased their repertoire of communication skills, and they felt uh, a much greater sense of confidence when uh, needing to have these difficult conversations. The participants also uh, shared with us in their questionnaires that they felt uh, better able to establish relationships and forge relationships with families, and also um, about 75 to 82 percent of the uh, par- uh, participants also felt less anxious around uh, having the conversation after they had um, had gone through the program with colleagues. And uh, one of the findings that we were very happy about was that uh, 
99 to 100% of the participants said that they would recommend it to their colleagues. So, again, we generated enthusiasm around these difficult conversations, helped people to feel a little bit more equipped to have them. Um, we also helped people to understand what different disciplines uh, would bring to these kinds of difficult conversations. So in, in that regard, we felt that we really were able to have a positive effect on uh, the teamwork. How do practitioners usually learn about talking with patients and families um, in difficult conversations and difficult situations? Well, I think uh, this varies quite a bit, um, but probably the most common way is through observation of others. And oftentimes, uh, if you ask clinicians, they'll say, well, I, I learned through trial and error. We did ask participants how many of them had a mentor or somebody that they felt was really a guide for them around having difficult conversations. And a little under half of people said that they had a mentor. So I would say that through our clinical experience, we sort of pick things up. Uh, this is this is changing somewhat, of course, with the ACGME uh, core competencies. Now you will see more classes and more continuing education courses around communication. But there's, there's no question in our mind that the educational initiatives that are aimed at communication and relational abilities compared to, um, comparatively, they're underrepresented and they're, quite frankly, they're undervalued compared to the educational efforts that are devoted, let's say, to technical skill acquisition. So that I would say the number one way that people usually learn is through trial and error, observing others and saying, gee, this worked, I like the way that this sounded. Um, and so they incorporate it into their own uh, repertoire, if you will. Uh, you mentioned that part of this um, program was in teaching the um, clinicians to look at things perhaps from the patient and family perspective or at least be aware of their perspectives. What, mm -hmm. what is important to patients and their families when they're dealing with difficult conversations in healthcare? Well, I would say uh, we had done, uh, my colleagues and I here, uh, Jeff Burns and Dr. Bob Trug, had done quite a bit of work in our pediatric intensive care unit around end of life specifically. And we had the opportunity really to ask uh, families, uh, parents, what was important to them when, when faced, uh, you know, at, with end of life and particularly with the difficult conversations. And patients and families uh, do have their preferences. So I, I always preface, you know, this with saying that we really need to ask and accommodate to what it is that families want because I don't think it's the case that one size fits all. So that's really one of the skills of being a good communicator is to be able to um, be flexible and be um, adaptable. But I think uh, overall families very much value honest and complete information. Families want to know the big picture. Oftentimes uh, in our setting we might go through the review of systems and in a way we give um, the, 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 the components of what the big picture is, but oftentimes families very much want to know what does it all mean, what's, what's the big picture, and what does this mean for my child, uh, for the future. Families uh, and parents value uh, a, a clinician who is forthcoming, I think, in their, in their uh, communication. Oftentimes families have to ask just the right question or find just the right person uh, to answer a question for them. And sometimes we're a little uh, reluctant to, uh, in other words, we only answer exactly what they ask. So that I think sometimes uh, to really set the stage that we're open, that we're available, that receptive to their questions is, is very important. 
and uh, obviously making time uh, for families to have these kinds of uh, conversations is is important. I, I do find in my own clinical work that families very much want to be tapped, if you will, for their, for their expertise about being a parent. What do they know specifically about their child? Oftentimes they know aspects of the child's history that, that as clinicians we may not know. So I think family members really want to be tapped for their expertise and acknowledged for what it is that they have to offer to their, to their child's care. Um, being timely is very important to families. Uh, they they want to know who's available. Uh, they don't want to interrupt oftentimes. Uh, they want to know the rules and what the opportunities are really to speak with people and to know, um, if you will, the culture of the intensive care unit, the culture of the clinical setting so that they can, many of them really do want to join as partners. Um, they uh, Families have certainly shared with us that um, what makes a good clinician a great clinician is a clinician that really uh, enters into genuine relationship and really can bring their whole self and be authentic uh, with their patients. And um, one of the things that I've learned um, over the course of my career and certainly through our um, research is that five years, ten years down the line, um, you know, family members really don't remember the specific medicines and the procedures uh, that we do in the intensive care unit, but what they do remember, the residue, if you will, uh, what they remember years later is uh, oftentimes what people said to them and perhaps most importantly how they were treated. I think those are all really important points and they're not intuitive things for somebody mm. who's who's new in clinical practice. Mm-hmm. What um, did you find is important to practitioners with respect to difficult conversations? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that we found uh, over and over again is that practitioners, I think, really want to do a good job with these difficult conversations. Um, sometimes they feel unprepared. Uh, they feel like they're they're a little nervous about getting in over their head, if you will. They might feel a little ill-equipped um, and lack confidence in this area of practice. However, we know it's just absolutely so vital to um, good relationships, good working um, uh, healthcare relationships. And we see over and over that um, clinicians, I think, could benefit from a bit of a roadmap, a way, if you will, to handle their own emotions during these conversations and, and have a way to contain those. Um, and also to um, have ways that they feel comfortable with, how do I introduce myself? How do I prepare myself for this conversation? Who should I invite to the team meeting? Just there are many, many things that we can think about ahead of time. And so I think the opportunity to sit with other people who really understand the culture of the ICU, have these kinds of conversations, and also uh, when we uh, work in our small groups and run our programs, we really hear the perspectives of other clinicians. So oftentimes uh, it's not unusual for people to say, gee, I had no idea that's what a chaplain uh, has to offer or, or, you know, I'm not going to go into one of these conversations again without the bedside nurse. So I think that there's an appreciation um, for wanting to do a good job. And, again, I think what we try to do is offer people some skills, but also helping them to realize if they can really rely on that trustworthy part of their own humanity in these conversations, that that will always, I think, be a good um, guide for them. And to really 
hold fast to some good principles like being honest and uh, being genuine and um, and and also I think kind is 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 very very important these kinds of human qualities that oftentimes are not really professionally validated we might not see them on a PowerPoint but again I think each one of us has to uh, you know be ourselves um, certainly have some communication skills up our sleeve and um, there sometimes there are many mnemonics uh, that people learn uh, we tend to find that people get a little um, they're trying to remember the mnemonic and then they forget the person before them so we always um, try to encourage people to um, really fully appreciate what they already know about having difficult conversation so that they can really draw on those already established good clinical skills and good relational abilities and then to go from there. I think the multidisciplinary group <clears throat> that you talked about is is really an important part of having a, a meeting like this. It reflects the um, concept of we are a team, we are all working together, including the, the patient and family. Um, and I also think uh, your comment about the members of the group learning and appreciating what the other members do is important. The The comment about I'm never going into one of these meetings mm -hmm. without the bedside nurse again really resonated with me because mm -hmm. physicians are typically expected at least to start and lead these kinds of conversations. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you're not experienced at it, you really like a lot of moral support. And mm -hmm. um, the bedside nurse um, commonly has mm -hmm. uh, a stronger relationship um, with the family because they spend so much time with them mm -hmm. um, and can be a great source of support to the rest of the team. Mm. So I think that multidisciplinary focus is exceedingly valuable. Mm. Well, this, I think, is one of the things that's unique to our program. Um, we like to train in an interdisciplinary way, so our programs will involve, you know, they they include physicians, nurses, social workers, psychologists, chaplains. We now have our medical interpreters um, also learning with us, uh, child life specialists, and we really value the multiple perspectives that people bring uh, because we do see things a little differently. And I think you're right to the extent that we can uh, borrow, if you will, the good trust and uh, relationships that we've, uh, let's say, for instance, the bedside nurse might have established, you know, we're more, you know, we're, we're, we're greater than the sum of our parts, as, 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 if you will. And I think it's, it's not so different here. And I think sometimes the physicians uh, really, um, I think traditionally they do lead the family meetings and oftentimes there's a lot of pressure on them to, uh, to be in charge. And oftentimes it's a wonderful thing when we see conversations. We call them conversations because we really want them to be more of a back and forth flow of information between clinicians and family members rather than a one-way exchange of information. And in fact, that's one of the things that we really learn together is how do we you know, begin these meetings so that people can be at ease and, um, you know, we're, we feel prepared. How do we introduce ourselves? How do we find out um, what the family knows about the situation? Because if we can get on the same page early in the conversation, you know, it really, um, it's more satisfying to, for the clinicians as well as the family members. And oftentimes we go in with agendas for our meetings. Um, I know in our own settings, sometimes we'll say, well, today we really 
need to introduce the idea, for instance, of withdrawal of life support. And the family may or may not be at that point. So I think to uh, really be open about, you know, there are some things that we very much would like to talk about today and we feel are important, but to say to the family that we're sure that there are things that are on your mind that you would like to have a chance to talk about. So let's make sure we understand what those are and that we make sure that we have time to, you know, in a sense, really um, adjust our agenda so that we can uh, be sort of mutually satisfied with what the, how the meeting is going to go. And also, um, one of the things that I think is so key is um, learning about uh, the pacing of these conversations. Sometimes we try to uh, fit so much into a conversation. We put an undue amount of pressure on ourselves. And I think the families, they, families have really told us that they appreciate um, a slower pace, um, silence. I, I like to teach people to speak, if you will, in sentences rather than paragraphs, where you can, uh, the family can kind of come up for air in between, try to digest what it is you're saying, and then uh, you know, continue. In this, um, following this program, um, the Perks program, what improvements in communication and relational abilities did the participants report in the, uh, you did a before and after evaluation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. What, what did they think was better? Well, what they, uh, again, they really felt uh, when they, I should probably say PERC stands for Program to Enhance Relational and Communication Skills, and the, the practitioners themselves said that they felt more prepared to have the uh, family meetings, and thus I think also they were more willing to have them, <laughs> interestingly, because one of the things we do know from the literature is that there's sometimes a, a certain reluctance to have, uh, you know, to sit down with families, um, you know, we're all very busy, um, and sometimes people feel uh, that maybe somebody else might be better prepared to have this, so just being more prepared and more willing to make time for these. Um, one of the things I think that's unique to the uh, PERCS program is that we actually uh, we have um, interdisciplinary faculty so that we have a physician who's our faculty. We also have somebody who represents a psychosocial discipline, but we also have family faculty members. So one of the big things um, that I think our clinicians come away from the program with is a sense of understanding the family and the patient's perspective better. And understanding um, having these conversations and good relationships is so vital to to good health care. They feel more confident. Lots of um, skills that uh, they they report uh, to us. For instance, oftentimes before um, you know when we practice and we you know have our actors and we're practicing these conversations, the um, the uh, practitioners will have a bit of a huddle, if you will, a little uh, prep meeting. And to be honest with you, oftentimes they say, "Gee, in my actual practice, I don't really have a huddle. We don't really talk about it or figure out what we're doing beforehand." So that is something that we find that the clinicians are doing more of. They're actually doing some more prep work. They certainly are giving, they're more mindful about who they invite to the meetings so that we would, as you mentioned, you know, we would have the bedside nurse there. We would make the time to have the social worker there and, um, you know, who's going to follow up on these meetings. And I think what what happened um, and what the uh, clinicians who went through the program talked about was that they not only learned new skills, 
but they also had the opportunity to reflect on what they were good at, perhaps what they needed some help with. And they came away, I think, with a greater sense of trust in their own abilities and being will, there are a greater willingness, willingness to access, um, to, to sort of have, um, admit into the conversation their, their own um, personal style, um, the existing relational strengths that they had. For instance, if they were, um, could people put people at ease with humor or um, they were gracious, you know, these kinds of things that they really, that was validated in a professional way in our meetings so that people really got a chance to see themselves um, through the video playback. They got some feedback, some constructive feedback from others. And I think they went forward feeling like they were set on a good path. Um, a little bit more self-confident, and I think with more enthusiasm <laughs> to go forward with these conversations. Uh, that's mainly what people reported to us. Uh, they felt uh, really better equipped, I think, in the long run. Uh, and uh, oftentimes would say to us, I oftentimes get emails and in our questionnaires, people will say, I often find myself going back to the conversation around the table at what perhaps the family faculty member said or what one of the actors gave feedback. And I like to teach people and we encourage people to say, you know, when you're out there in actual practice after you've taken the program, think about what people around the table might advise you or might suggest to you so that we really are encouraging a self-reflective practice. Oftentimes, we've gotten feedback from some of our clinicians who have taken the program that they will spontaneously want to have a little debriefing after the family meetings that they have. And that's new. Uh, that's not something that they would typically have done in their, in their practice. So we really have seen some changes in their own clinical practice, self-reported clinical practice, as a result of the program. Is this program geared towards trainees or people who are more experienced? How do you select who's going to go through the program? Thank you for that question. Uh, well, as I mentioned, it is interdisciplinary, but we also feel very strongly um, and are big proponents of having a wide range of uh, experience level in our group. So it's very mixed, unlike other training programs, let's say, that are you know, geared for third-year uh, pediatric residents. Um, I have to tell you, that's the comfort zone of people. You know, nurses want to train with nurses. Social workers want to train with social workers. Yeah. That's what we're used to, that sort of silo um, uh, approach. But when we mix people up and you learn across boundaries, across different disciplines and across different experience levels, this is where I think the richness of the learning really comes through. And I have to say that um, early on in the program, even before people take the program, we prepare them that they're going to be training with people from different disciplines, different ranges of experience, and that we all have something to offer. Uh, there were equal status partners, if you will, when we come to the table. We try to flatten that hierarchy. And I have to say to you, sometimes the most um, profound and revealing and important teachings come from our newest members of our team. And I think part of that is because, uh, you know, they haven't been uh, socialized in a way or, the, you know, that, that original vocation that the reason why they wanted to be a nurse or why they wanted to be a doctor was to, you know, make a difference in people's lives. You know, that, that hasn't, the brilliance is still on that, uh, that uh, uh, intention, and I think that they remind us sometimes of 
the reason why we wanted to be a social worker or a psychologist or a physician, and they really, that helps in a sense to uh, renew our enthusiasm for the work. And so uh, we don't... um, we, we take all comers. Uh, um, oftentimes, we began our program as a volunteer program, but now that we've had many of the uh, directors of some of our training programs come, they are requiring their um, their trainees to take it. And it's always wonderful when we have um, our attending level physicians um, study with us and learn with us. And what makes such a big impression on trainees is when um, the more experienced clinicians can come and sit down and say, I'm still learning. Even after 30 years, there's new things for me to learn so that we're really modeling lifelong learning. And when it comes to the art of conversations, we've never really reached the promised land, if you will. Um, It's not like we get a set of skills and we can go off and be perfect. In fact, I think perfect isn't good enough when it comes to the art of um, being in the moment with families and having these kinds of challenging conversations with them. So um, really, we mix it up, the learning group, and we've had great luck with that, great success. Although I have to say people are a little nervous about it at first. We try to set them at ease and really help them to realize that every single member on the team is a valuable player and has something very unique, and we never want to underestimate the contribution that each uh, team member can make. I think that's an extremely important point, and I congratulate you on developing this program. Um, If others wanted to um, try to implement this kind of program at their institution, what would you suggest to them? Well, what I would suggest is, um, first of all, we have several um, papers now that have been published about the program, so we're really trying to get information out there. We have a brand new and updated website. It's uh, www.ipep, which is ipepweb.org. Um, we certainly are, um, we really welcome people to come and visit our program, to learn from us. We are available um, for consultation um, to really share what it is that we have to offer. We've made some professional uh, educational videotapes that we also um, can make available for people. And we're really um, excited now that we have some spawned some programs. Some people who have actually taken programs with us are now beginning programs around the country and uh, internationally also um, people are picking up this model and so we're you know, very happy to share that uh, through our website, through our publications, and also through people actually enrolling in our programs here in Boston. It's, I think it's nice to see um, sort of a mature program in action. And um, we really do have a model where we try to understand what it is in your particular setting uh, would be valuable. Because again, what works at Boston Children's Hospital may not work um, at another institution, so we don't want to make that assumption. But we really try to share what our um, our growth curve has been, how we've matured as a program, and how we've gained acceptance. Uh, we started out doing difficult conversations in the pediatric intensive care unit, and we have not done a whole lot of marketing. I have to be honest with you, but our program has grown very organically. For instance, the neurosurgeons will come to our program and say, you know, we really need a program like this for our for our faculty, for our trainees. And so what we do is we then customize our programs. Similarly, the neonatal intensive care unit, our advanced fetal care center. Um, we've now developed programs around um, 
conflict and disclosure of uh, medical error um, around informed consent uh, for anesthesiologists. So what we like to do is to say that we have some general principles and, if you will, a model of experiential learning around difficult conversations. And then what we love to do is partner with people around um, customizing it for certain uh, clinical settings. And that really helps because then we have people who can, you know, recruit um, people to take the program and also people that will really own it and uh, really fly with it. That's we're really in a mode where we're trying to be generative about what it is that we've learned and help other people get launched with programs like this. Well, that is great. Do you have any final comments today? Well, I, I guess what I would say is it's um, it's just so wonderful, uh, and thank you again for the opportunity to explain our work a little bit more. But I think uh, what we're realizing is that the the way that we communicate with families and the relationships that we have with them is I think sometimes people will see this as soft or extra, but really when you think about it, it's it's so vital to everything that we do. And I think that um, what we realize is that good communication is at the core of so much. Uh, the medical error literature now is um, really, I think the, the, the latest number that I've seen is that about 70% of times, if there is a medical error um, or um, if there is any kind of uh, litigation, oftentimes it comes back to difficulties with communication. And we know that when there's good communication, uh, there's better satisfaction in terms of the patient and family satisfaction. There's better treatment adherence and better medical outcomes. So I think that what we realize is that this is, a, in every sense of the word, a, uh, a true core competency that I think we all want to feel good about, um, or at least good enough about. Uh, it's not to say that we're going to put our social work and our psychology uh, colleagues out of business, but what I find is that it's so uh, wonderful for our clinicians to walk out and feel that at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning when it may only be you, that, um, that you're equipped, that you feel confident, and you feel that you can be in the moment, be present with a family, and that you really have something very vital to offer to them when you, you know, really give uh, of yourself to them and, and enter into these uh, difficult conversations. Thank you very much for joining us today, Elaine. It's been absolutely my pleasure, and visit us online, and we'd love to hear from you and your audience. We have been speaking today with Elaine Meyer, RN, Ph.D., from Children's Hospital in Boston, about the article, Difficult Conversations, Improving Communication Skills and Relational Abilities in Healthcare, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in May 2009. This concludes our podcast. Thank you for listening. The Society has a variety of new and updated publications for dedicated critical care experts like you. These publications cover numerous topics, including rapid response systems, fundamental disaster management, pediatric critical care, coding and billing for critical care, critical care ethics, mechanical ventilation, and the critical care refresher. For more information on these and other publications, visit the online store at www.sccm.org. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, guest podcast editor for Pediatrics.
Dr. Parker is Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.